0: Welcome to Creative Innovators. This is Gigi Johnson, your host. Today's episode is with Peter Kiesewalter, who, goodness gracious, he's working on the Moth Project now, which will be a multi-year project combining art and science, connecting location-based entertainment and music about the lives of moths. But he's had this long career combining clarinet and klezmer with abc news music with being a a arranger and composer for intriguing acts he picks up different projects and his goal is to keep evolving enjoy the story of how he's put together such an unusual career and think about what this might be for your career So we're going to get to talking more extensively about the Moth Project, but can you give us a 60-second burst about that and other things you're working on right now? Almost
1: 100% the Moth Project. I mean, it's still in its infancy right now, so it's not a self-sustainable thing yet. It's been my experience in my career that it takes a couple of years for something to get off the ground to the point where I can actually live off of it. We're rolling this out this, this month, so it's about a year and a bit old. Um, I'm doing other work um, more as an arranger um, and a composer these days. Uh, I was a resident composer at ABC Television for many years. I still do odd bits of um, scoring for television or film or documentaries. Um, I'm also hired as a music director from some events. Um, There's an annual event at Lincoln Center. uh, Bob Woodruff, the journalist, his foundation has an annual thing that goes through the the, the comedy festival. So there's four comedians hosted by Jon Stewart Bruce Springsteen is a musical guest, but I am in charge of the music, the big band. So I put together a 17-piece big band and do all the arrangements, and that's an annual gig that I do. Um, There's someone upstate um, who I won't name right now, but uh, um, I do some work for them. I do some production work for some singer-songwriters, but these days, it's about 90% of my time is going into the Moth Project. So
0: you're a multi-instrumentalist, you're a producer you're a ranger you're a composer sure. and what else, what do you not do well with i mean this?
1: who isn't right i mean anyone with a phone or, <laughs> or a laptop is a media mobile right so i mean the multi-hyphenate thing you know a musician producer composer it's all kind of vague everyone will say they are so let's just and everyone's also a filmmaker and an edi- editor and a designer right like every who doesn't do multiple things these days um so yes i i I do a bunch of those things my degree is in classical clarinet and jazz saxophone performance and i came here in 1997 to study privately also because new york was the center of my world like all the music that i loved and studied was basically invented in new york so i came here got a grant from the canadian arts council to come study and then i never went back so I've been here 25 years. Well, I'm going to
0: back you up even further. I want, to, Of course, I want to know how a clarinetist ends up at, at ABC yeah. News. But I want to back you up as to. So young kid yes. Peter, growing up in Canada, um, was... Just doing music from the get-go? Or are you from a musical family? System. Did you? How'd you get a clarinet in your hands? Did you actually start with something else? Uh, the
1: clarinet, thanks to the school system, and at that point still a, a robust investment in music in all the schools, right? Um, so it wasn't until I got into grade seven did I get a clarinet in my hand. I had been sort of informally taking piano from my father, who was an amateur musician, Um and I had a, a bit of a gift where he taught me himself in a very sort of unorthodox kind of kind of manner. Um, uh, and then when it came time for me to pick a vocation, uh, my folks were both aghast that I wanted to study music. Um, and in fact, did not allow it. I had to study economics for two years before I said, enough of this, I'm out of here. Um, but I, I had to leave my parents' house to study music because... Um, for two German immigrants coming from post-war Germany, music was a fine hobby, but not a very responsible thing to do to make a living. Right? Um, I mean,
0: so they thought you were going to study economics and be a banker. I mean, what was kind well, of the uh, the narrative vision that you're walking the, through? Um,
1: the narrative vision was uh, living vicar, like you know, my dad living vicariously through me. Um, we're in Ottawa, which uh, is sort of a civil service town, the capital of Canada. There's a um, a great business school at the university there, and of course, it's the it's the seat of the central government there. So I think he found, he wanted to go into political science or or um, you know social studies, economics, and uh, that was what he 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 suggested for me. Um, I wasn't strong enough at age 18 to say uh-uh, no way. Um So I complied um, and I hated it um and right from the get go, I was already playing in cover bands uh, um, so my mind was not in the school at all but i I stuck it out for
0: now did you have yes. siblings? do you have siblings that that could do that performative stuff for your no. family
1: um the, the one i I was one of four uh, my youngest brother, Toby, who's also involved with this project he 's an environmental biologist now, he was actually the most talented of the family. he was a recorder. Prodigy at age four, five, six, he was doing recordings with the CBC, um, which is Canada's NPR, with with you know baroque orchestras mm-hmm. from Toronto and Montreal. As a ten year old, um, he's a phenomenal baroque and Renaissance music specialist. And people that don't understand what that what baroque Renaissance music is, because there's not really that much of a scene here. There is in Europe, um, but he was really the, the gifted musical one of the family. Um, but I'm the only one that chose it as a, as a vocation.
0: And your family's probably thinking at the time, what did we do wrong that we ended up having these fabulous creative I, artists in our family as, as their heart beating? You know, I, I see
1: where they're coming from. You grow up in a, in a country like, well, anywhere where there's been war and there is nothing. And, um, uh, I, I think fiscal responsibility was, uh, uh, certainly not uncommon for, for German immigrants to want that. Um, so I think initially they thought, or my dad thought, that studying music was, was maybe frivolous um, and maybe something he resented, not being having been given the chance um, growing up as a kid during World War II.
0: So you're saying cover bands, but you're a yes. clarinetist. What were you playing? What, what was the music that was calling to you at that age and stage? Well,
1: um, cover bands. So I put myself through university playing keyboards in rock bands, country bands. Uh, Ottawa ah. has a robust country music scene. I was a, a musician at a country music studio there. I played in jazz bands. I played cover band in the '80s. It was we called it top forty, whatever was on the radio, the top forty hits that were on the radio. Well, we did as many of those as we. Possibly could, and for a band that plays music that is on the radio currently, like you get a lot of gigs. You play all the time, and it's a great way to get your setup together, to learn ear training, to learn how to lift parts off of um, your singing, your playing. Um, it was uh, it was a great musical education to to uh, to play. I mean, whatever was on the radio in the mid '80s: Tears for Fears, Tina Turner, Bruce Springsteen, Wham. Name it. It was if it was on the radio, we were playing it.
0: And that's still big now. Um, cover bands, multi-billion-dollar live so, show business. Yeah, that's, and-
1: that, yeah. I mean this, this might be part of a later part of the discussion, but um, it seems to me uh, uh, after um, a period of about twelve, fourteen years of of not playing the performing arts centers, I sort of stayed at home and to raise my kids, but. I'm going out there again and see, and cuz I used to play that circuit the performing arts centers the theaters in 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 uh in the states and more and more these days it's well for lack of a better word cover bands it's tribute acts that are that are getting a lot like I can't tell you how many tribute acts there are to to the Eagles Hotel California how many tribute oh, yeah. acts are to Chicago at the last music conference I went to, again I hadn't been for 15 years, so it was a shock to me how much the the, the paradigm had shifted. Um, there were three three tribute acts to Michael Bublé. Think about that. My,
0: oh wow! Michael Bublé is already
1: a tribute act. <laughs> like uh, although he's doing a lot more, inc- <laughs> but there were three Michael Bublé tribute acts. Countless tenors groups, oh, countless wow. Hotel California, countless Chicago tributes, countless Rat Pack things, and. These are the people that are that I'm in competition with to get these gigs at these places that I used to be able to, to get shows at. Um, and of course, because the music is familiar and, and people are more and more reluctant to leave their, their houses these days. I'm not sure if you noticed this, but the pandemic sure turned a lot of people into couch potatoes. Not, I'm not going out. For one, they don't want to risk death in a concert hall, but, but also um, there's just so much to watch. The, the,
0: well, that and... Uh, music is actually suffering and can wander all over the place on some of this stuff, but music, live music is actually suffering from this less than other live performance that across California, I want to say the number for last year was down 10%. And uh, those folks who were doing live regular theater, uh, other live events were finding a much bigger drop. So people really, and it's really a demographic issue mm-hmm. too you know, what do you go that you're comfortable with and, and all of that stuff. So, so I want to backtrack though. So you ended up college yeah. in clarinet. I keep coming back yeah. to the clarinet part. I'm a, I'm a yeah. clarinet player when I was of that age and ilk as well, though definitely not doing it in a college yeah. level. What did you think you were going to be doing? This was a great in? thing. I,
1: I went to a school, it was small enough, um, where, uh, but also top notch teachers. So Ottawa being the, the capital of Canada. We have the National Arts Centre Orchestra there. It's a federally funded orchestra. Incredible players. Pretty light um, performance schedule in, in terms of when compared to other orchestras. My teacher was really t- top flight clarinetist, um, and I had a great relationship with him. He knew that I had no illusions of being of wanting to uh, pursue an orchestral career on the clarinet. I told him right from the get go. Um, My interests are too much like this. Uh, He said, that's fine, but uh, where you're studying with me, you have to do this, 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 this. You have to play in the orchestra. You have to play orchestral excerpts. You have to enter the concerto competition. Um, And so you you check off all the stuff that I teach any clarinetist, and we're going to be fine. Where he gave me tremendous leeway and flexibility was in my recitals. Um, I could diverge a bit uh, and do, for instance, in my final year, Uh, an independent research assignment on clarinet techniques in like folk music from the Middle East, from East Europe, which is a very different style of playing than, than classical clarinet. Right. But he was cool and allowed me to do that as long as I, um, as I, I did all the the stuff that I had to do, which is play, you know, books of all the tricky parts, the, the orchestral excerpts, um. Uh, and all the regular lessons, so that, and simultaneously doing um, a minor on jazz saxophone with another fantastic teacher, um, so I I think I got a, I, I was kind of like the big fish, small pond kind of situation up there, and um, uh, I, I, I didn't hit a wall, but at some point, I thought, if I'm going to keep evolving, I need to go uh, and get my ass kicked a little bit, and I, I came here um, initially as a as a musician
0: to the big, to pond. The big pond. Yeah.
1: <laughs> um, uh, for the first time in 1996, I was playing in Jane Sibri's band at that point. Jane Sibri is a Canadian singer songwriter of some renown. Maybe people in that world will know who she is. Um, so she certainly was well known enough to do a residency at the bottom line in the, in the village. So she was playing there every month for a weekend. Um, that was my first experience in New York um, in 1996. And I landed and I thought, oh. I I think I belong here. Um, I mean, her band was spectacular and musicians you see in the subway on the street were just like, are you kidding me? Wow. Um, My mind was just blown um, constantly.
0: So where did you think you were going at this stage? I mean, you're commenting that you'd like to diverge a bit. Where was that? I'm in New York. I'm in the big pond. I'm playing with a, at least monthly with a big, a big band, a big player. Where where was the aim at that point in time for your evolution at None, the time? There,
1: there was no aim, and that's there, there never is. I mean, I can only see a week in, in, in advance. I don't have really an aim. I didn't at that point. I'm just going wherever doors might open, um, including with this right now. I mean, I'm fifty, about to turn fifty-seven, and I will go. To whoever picks up the phone says, "Hey, do you guys want to come with the mock project to the Santa Fe Botanical Garden and play?" you know, for our show down there. And if if they can cough up our performance fee, I'm, I'm there, but I don't have really, I never have had a master, master plan. So I I came just thinking I'd stay for a few months and, um, and just sort of check it out and see what happens. Um, and I kind of slipped into a, a scene on the Lower East Side, the singer songwriter scene a little bit because of my work with Jane, people knew Jane. Um, so, um, um, They invited me to play with them, and it certainly wasn't enough to live on. Um, And that's where the ABC thing came in. If had I not got that gig, I never would have stayed here beyond the first couple of months. Um, But it sort of fell in my lap.
0: So, how did you end up at ABC News? I find that a kind of crazy
1: Um, gig shift. um, A friend of a friend. I knew basically two people in New York, one of whom uh, is an event planner, and she was on the board of some sort of performance art theater groups, one called On Guard Arts in uh, in, in Brooklyn. And uh, one of her best friends was the resident composer at ABC television. This is just in the time still where they, they had composers when they would do a documentary or a a little bit for 2020 or Monday Night Football or for primetime, hand you the tape and say, this is going to air tomorrow at at 4.30. Can you put some music to this, you know? So um, this guy, John Hodian, was so busy there, he needed help. Um, And he asked his our mutual friend if uh, she knew someone. And she turned to me and said, have you ever done this kind of thing before? I said, of course I have. I'd never... Never done TV scoring before. I'd done theater soundtracks in Canada, but I'd never scored to uh, for for TV. Um, So it was a pretty steep learning curve right off the bat. But um, I got in there in 1999. Um, He left shortly thereafter, and I stayed there as the resident composer at ABC News Productions for another five years. After that, um, and made money. This was uh, the last time I actually made money in the in in music.
0: Were you gigging yes. also yeah, or was this I was. kind of absorbing audio yeah, space? It all was a lot, kind of.
1: Of, a lot of bandwidth required to maintain that. And at the same time, I was also working for Disney um, doing this this new version of Winnie the Pooh that they had put up with puppets. So I did four seasons of that and all the stuff that ABC could throw at me. And then, um, again, mostly gigs in town. I was not on the road with my own thing till I stopped working at ABC. Um, but, yeah, for those five, six years, it was intense. Here we need this yesterday. Um, you know, while I'm doing other stuff. Um, but yeah, it was it was lucrative. Um, I I don't say that lightly. I, I made money.
0: So did they turn off the tap, or did you? The turn whole off industry the tap?
1: changed. Uh, it went from using live composers, composers to using CD libraries. Um, it was a real shift. So editors would start cutting to CD sound libraries. Uh, and there was this whole thing where the producers wanted a more of an MTV style of music kind of thing. Quicker cut, cut to the beat, uh, lots of different music examples, which um, was, became unsustainable for one composer to put 100 different cues on a 45-minute on a documentary kind of thing. So it went that way pretty quickly all at the same time.
0: So you then had a shift to yes. make, and at the time, I think that's when you ended up with the Brooklyn Run Funk Orchestra, uh, oh, or what was the uh, shift, or is there a there gap is. there? I, I
1: scored a soundtrack to one movie. It starred Ernest Borgnine as a mafia don, and there was a Canadian actor in it who was the star of it, who plays... Um, this, Someone from like an Italian-American neighborhood who wants to study opera. Ernest Borgnine is the mafia don who takes this kid under his wing, pays for his lessons, and they gets in mesh. Long story short, the whole soundtrack had to be kind of opera music. Um, the problem was the actor was not an opera singer. He was a great singer. He was a pop singer. So, for me to do the music in the traditional sense out of the score with him singing over it wasn't cutting it. It sounded like a bad student recital. And again, this guy's a great singer. He was like, he was on Broadway, he was in The Leading Tommy and Miss Saigon. He's a great singer. But to do legit opera, he he didn't have the voice for it, right? So I went to the director and I said, "Let me make turn these opera arias into uh like imagine if Mozart and Puccini were alive today, what would they do? They would use drums and samplers and electric guitars." I did the whole score using modern instrumentation. And that soundtrack ended up um, becoming a project I did for about a decade called the East Village Opera Company. Um, People got wind of it. There was, um, signed a record deal with Decca Universal, made three records, traveled around the world with a lot of people, um, went to the Grammy Awards, got an Emmy Award. um, And that that, that was that. Uh, That happened right when I was leaving ABC. So it was just kind of a smooth transition from that to that.
0: So you became a single-focused person, or did you take the opportunity to plant many seeds during that time? I didn't plant
1: anything except – my planting always happens in the work that I put out. Like When I do something, it doesn't necessarily always pay immediate dividends, it, but further on down the road, this has happened time and time again. Someone hears something I did seven years ago or a decade ago, even though I didn't even release it or it didn't make any money, and they'll say – are you, you're the guy that did that thing? Like, I'm looking for something that's kind of like that. So, um, yeah, the East Village Opera Company took up 100% of my time at that point. It was, it was, um, yeah, we made records and we toured and, and um, you know, made videos. This is slightly before the social media time came in, uh, but, but um, we were out there and we did what we could.
0: So you have... Over time, it had a whole buffet and vocabulary of projects before you've got to the moth yeah. recently. What are the other things that you might want to call out from the other work that well, you've done?
1: Well, as a clarinetist, I was really um, – one of the reasons I came to New York was because I think New York was a real center for klezmer music, Um Which features the clarinet, you know? I mean, uh, I I came here, Mm -hmm. and one of the people in Jane Sibri's band at the time she was doing this residency at the bottom line was this guy, Frank London, who is probably the foremost klezmer, uh, one of the foremost klezmer historians and musicians in the world, if not definitely New York City. He's got a band called The Klezmatics. um, And at at the time, he was writing a klezmer opera, um, and I kind of... Again, it just this all just happened. I happened to be there at the right time, um, and I worked with him a little bit, learned a lot. Um, of course, as a, uh, a student of the jazz saxophone, I mean, there's no better place to be than New York City, so I just kind of immersed myself in what was happening at the time. Um, and uh, so I was definitely very much into... into um, I, and I always spend intense periods of time focused on like sort of one record or one artist I mean there was five years of my life where I listened to nothing but Miles Davis and what everyone in his bands did kind of between the years of 57 and 62 um, just absorbing all of that stuff and klezmer music I was deep into um, Cajun and Zydeco music because I played um, accordion as well and I had a band called the Angstones that I fronted with an accordion and played clarinet in so anything that featured accordion Jim Zydeco, I was deeply into that stuff as well. Um, and like I say, I, I I put myself through school playing keyboards and rock bands and country bands. So I, I always felt I had a pretty broad scope of musical understanding, but I I realized that I was never... Uh, I, I have too much respect for classical and jazz music to 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 call myself either one of those. I'm not a classical musician and I'm not a jazz musician because I think either of those vocations... It's you have to dedicate a life. You got to dedicate a life just to, just to maintain the technique, uh, um, to to be on top of that in that world. So I will say I'm informed by them, um, and you'll hear it on the the Moth Project record. I mean, oh, that, that, this is Claude Debussy. Here's Aaron Copland. Here's Bach. Um, so yeah, I and, and I did win a concerto competition when I was in university, but I just I don't play jazz or classical enough to 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 keep. To keep it up at that level where it's like that's amazing.
0: You are possibly the least vanilla performer I've run into in a long time. The fact that you don't just take one anything that you blend and merge and morph instruments. Types of music, but then you deep dive into it, which is an interesting combination that you're not just picking from a buffet, but you're really drilling down yeah, into the space. Um,
1: I think being in New York, I discovered what I was good at by, dis- by finding out what I should not be doing. I found out very quickly that, no, I'm not a jazz musician. No, there's probably a, a million players in the city who are better than I am. But I did find out what I was very good at. Um, and just the, the East Village Opera Company alone, the, the maintaining that balance between taking these songs that were written 100 to 300 years ago, but with a modern sensibility, that, that that's a that's a that's a high wire balancing act that requires a profound understanding of the tradition that you're pulling from, and the musical references and settings that you're putting them into. You can't you can't you have to you have to understand. Uh, at a certain level both idioms that you're that you're mashing up together right? Yeah. Which is why most the classical crossover stuff is just so horrific um, uh, you know the, like the hooked on classics kind of approach where they just put a, 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 oh, a yeah, static yeah, yeah. beat underneath like you know like classical hits you know uh, the hits from Carmen or something like that. I think to to do a deep dive there has to be a, you have to have a bit of an understanding or a lot of an understanding of what it is that you're plundering um, uh, before you do something like that. And I think that's what I do with the the moth project as well. Like I, 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 I take, but I don't, I don't do it lightly. I don't just, um, I, I, I think I do a lot of research and a lot of practicing before I, you know, um, I put something on, on, on a record. If I answered your question, I'm sorry.
0: Yeah, I know. I was just sort of thinking because a lot of people really need proof before they move out into the next space and that they oftentimes need to see somebody ahead of them doing that or see evidence that there's a market or it sounds like you live the opposite life that you will step out off the curb into traffic without even knowing what the concrete looks like. But learning is you got to put things together and you have faith that the risk will deliver. That's so
1: beautifully put um, Gigi because, um, I do that all the time, uh, and my family, uh, uh, you know, I, my my dad uh, passed away um, a year ago, but he thought I was reckless. Um, I mean, he, he came to understand and appreciate and be proud of what I have accomplished, but he thought my way of life was a little bit reckless, which will at some point tie into the whole moth thing, why I'm doing the moth project, because I'm sitting around the campfire watching them fly into the fire thinking... I know there's a scientific explanation for this that, that some scientists hypothesize about. I can tell you about That's called transfer's orientation. But to me, it looked like this moth was like, that thing is just, that's desire and reckless spirit. I, I, I kind of like that. I, that I, that resonates with me. That, that's sort of why I did this. But yes, you're absolutely right. I will do things without um, knowing what, like, I'm not going to make a living off the moth project for three or four years. And yet here I am with three kids one of whom is starting college this year, and I'm doing it. Um, uh, it probably cost me my marriage at some point, to be <laughs> honest with you. Um, that was not an acceptable way to live life, not knowing how next month's rent is going to be paid. And I was not going to change. Um, so it's much better now. We have a great thing figured out. But yes, I will do things without really knowing how I'm going to pull it off or, or if there's a market for it or what. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll just do it. I will say, sorry to interrupt, that i, oh, I do no, take no. some cues from musicians that have come before me. Like I looked at a musician, there's this guitar player, Bill Frisell. He's he's some master guitar player in the jazz circle, but in this Americana kind of vein. Um and uh he made a record uh many years ago called Have a Little Faith, which basically looks like the history of American music on one And America's got the greatest inventions of all time, right? The music of the last century. I mean, the blues, jazz, bebop, R&B, rock and roll, um, country music, bluegrass music. Are you kidding me? Like all this comes from the United States, which is why a lot of foreigners love the United States, by the way, because of its music and why I came to New York. But I got this record and he's playing with a small four or five piece ensemble. He's playing an Aaron Copland suite, the Billy the Kid suite. And he taught me just by virtue of that record wow you can take an orchestral score and reduce it for for five people and still have room for self-expression in that so um a uh, funny quick story East Village Opera Company got nominated for a Grammy one year for one of our records and on the red carpet he was in front of me because he was nominated for best jazz record that and I got to tell him this I said I know you don't know me but I just got to tell you uh uh, I'm here because that record you put out in 90, whenever it was, uh, really, really changed my life. Um, and you showed me that you can play classical music with, with electric guitar, accordion, a drum kit, an electric bass, and a clarinetist. Um, um, so I, I do take my cue and I do borrow liberally from masters that have come before me. But I, I often do it without knowing how it's going to turn out or who might want it or um, or if I can even possibly make a living out of it. I have no idea
0: so so before we get deeper into the moth um have any of these things caused you to fall flat on your face, and oh, did you have learnings from those type of well this is what I'm doing right now
1: um I'm not this interview but but um <laughs> i mean I've put um well without putting a figure on it, but more money than I have into this uh just to, to get this to a point where people might not be interested, people might not care about this. At least in, in terms of the numbers that I need for this to be a viable way to pay the rent here in Flatbush, you know, right. this this could be a failure in the making right here. Um, failure. Oh yeah, failure all the time. It took me um, with East Village Opera Company. Our very first gig was was February two thousand four at Joe's Pub. We played for twelve people. I started that project in 2001 and I spent close well I won't even say uh, an insane amount of money to get it to the point where I had a self-produced record I had a group of 12 people there was a repertoire um, and that first show was our first public performance for 12 people um, th- that in some circles that's a that's a that's a horrible business model <laughs> it just doesn't what, what do yeah, you yeah, have to do yeah. Um, that, that ain't going to work three years and 12 P. Well, um, are you going to pack it in? Fortunately, the guy who was booking Joe's pub at the time, Bill Bragan, who now heads up the NYU arts department in Abu Dhabi, I think. Um, he was one of those rare gatekeepers of a cultural institution who said, um, Hey, you're doing something really cool. You got to come back immediately. So we came back four weeks later and then four weeks after that. And at that third show already, there were record companies there and it just, we never looked back. But had there not been someone like Bill Bragan there booking the place, I never would have even got the second gig. We only sold 12 tickets. And unfortunately, it's how much in the clubs, it's how much alcohol you sell is if you're going to get invited back, you know? So, um, I mean, that was probably a failure. Um, But there was one person who said, I think you should come back. Tons of failure.
0: It's the right doorway being open. It's back to the doors again. Mm -hmm. We have the door open. So the moth.
1: The moth project. uh,
0: The moth came out of the moth project. Not the moth, because that's confusing, because there's at least one other moth, if not many other moths. The moth project was born out of watching a moth fly into the flames or... Or sibling issues or opportunities of a conversation? How did that start? All
1: of that. The short answer is that it's a pandemic project. So in summer of 2020, 2020, uh, and it looks like is Manhattan turning into that movie where they put a curtain around it and they're like, you know, contagion or something. I grabbed my kids and Whitney Um, And headed to my family has a cottage in Canada on a lake. We've had it my entire life. My little brother, who is an interpretive naturalist or an environmental biologist, took his three kids. We quarantined together on the lake that summer, and he brought a um, a black light and his camera and took up mothing, which is the new birding right as a as as a hobby. And I'm I brought gin and I, I. Took up fretting. I was like, what am I supposed to do? All of my work had been canceled, and I'm watching him take pictures of these moths. And I'm seeing these pictures, and I had no idea in my entire life that there was that much biodiversity outside the cottage, um, just right outside. And one night, Gigi, he photographed 87 different species of moths. 87 different species, not 87 moths, 87 different species. Of moss from this big, the size of your hand, to the micro moss, all the colors of the rainbow, and I—I I was not paying attention. I had no idea. That was a catalyst for sure. Um, I had had already been sort of playing with the idea of a show that had a very strong visual component to it, but I had not quite put the pieces together for it. So every night we sat around the campfire, and yes, we watched Moss, and I saw his pictures and. In his world of interpretive naturalism, they're going through a massive paradigm shift as well on how they disseminate information. Used to be a biologist gets in front of a group of people following him on a nature hike, right, and saying, look, that's that's an oak tree, um, here's a spotted salamander, and you'll see throwing out a lot of information. Well, that they're trying to change that modality of, of, um, of interpretation, and One thing that is starting to happen is, uh, well, and it's about friggin' time, scientists are looking to artists. Who better to share information in an entertaining way than than people who have done that their whole life, right? So, um, I mean, this show very much lives at that intersection of art and science. My take on it all, and this is after a lot of work and a lot of research and, and getting the science right through my brother is how do I relate to this, to the natural world, to my ecosystem, to these moths. Um, So my moth project is less science and more of a family story, how I, how my family uh, interacts with this environment. So a lot of the songs are not really about the life cycle of the moth, but, there's a song about migration and there's metaphor and allegory and the literal meaning. Um, and it's, um, it's, uh, um, is, is he singing about moths right now or is he singing about his parents? Um, kind of thing, you know, moths are sometimes the ones that migrate are born into like, um, in South Texas, they come out of their cocoon. It's 105 degrees and they go, uh, this is too oppressive to survive here. we got to, we got to get out of here. So they fly North, you know? And my parents escaped their own oppressive situation in, in post-war Germany. I mean, so there's, there's that little parallel. That's just one example. But, but, but that's, that's sort of how it came to be, sitting around the campfire all summer with my little brother, who is an interpretive naturalist. And then he handed me a book that changed my life um, by Robin Wall Kimmerer. It's been on the New York Times bestseller um, for years. It's just celebrated its 10th anniversary. She's an esteemed botanist professor, recent MacArthur fellow from last year, um, and an enrolled member of the Citizen Potawatomi Nation. And her book is a series of essays which combine Western botany with indigenous wisdom. And um, I mean, I I don't know about you, but I I was getting depressed reading the daily environmental news. Okay, uh, 100% of scientists say we're screwed. Okay, next day. Um, um, drilling rights granted to ExxonMobil, and the, like it's, every day the news was bleak and bad. And this book uh, literally changed my life. Um, and again, she's just laying out some indigenous concepts like the concept of reciprocity, which is what am I going to give back to the earth? Because it's just polite. When someone gives you a gift, well, you say thank you or you give them a gift back, right? Well, so we the earth gives us the privilege and this is her words, the privilege of breath. <gasps> the privilege of breath. How can I gift the earth for the privilege of breath? Uh, well, I hadn't thought about that, you know. Um, and she has some answers. I mean, paying attention is a gift. Um, gratitude is a gift. Tr- make transformative works of art. I went bingo. I can do that. That's how I'm that's what I'm going to do. Um, and it, it, the book is very hopeful um you know why do my kids know a thousand corporate logos but they couldn't name you 10 trees when they saw them i mean that's kind of sad right um just things like that Mm. so um i it's it's consciously made me uh that book her words um pay attention to the neighbors the critters around me the, the the plants um and and all that so that's again a long-winded answer to your story but it it, it really did was a sort of pandemic kind of project
0: so the state of your art on this is you've got a combination of conscious environmental science communication combined with story and emotion and music is the form of this audio and visual now performative uh, experiential, captured in media? What's the state of someone says, I would like to drink from this well right now. What are they experiencing and doing? They are going yeah, to a concert? they're coming to see a
1: show. And it could be in uh, any number of venues. This is the other thing I wanted to do. I wanted to just, especially with the pandemic, the, I mean, are we allowed to play indoors anymore? So this show, I mean, we just got back from Santa Fe. Um, so we're playing in Botanical gardens outside against, you know, I have my own projector, it's screen some venues have that, but we'll go anywhere with this. It's a very lean two-person type of situation. But with a minimum 16-foot wide by nine foot high video screen and projections um which are very very integrated with the music and very much in time with it. So it's a combination of uh slow motion video of moths in slow motion flight of of macro photography of moths, of motion graphics, of lyrics being displayed, of um, of uh, all sorts of natural ecosystem kind of footage, um, while we sing a series of of twelve songs about and inspired by moths. Um, we wear white, so we disappear into the screen as much as possible. Um, and uh, yeah, it's very it's a very visual. What I'm trying to do is what some of these great books have done for me, which is it's less educational and more instilling a sense of awe and wonder for the natural world. That's it. I'm not teaching anything about, you know, there's a a few facts, but if, if people can leave and go, that was cool, that was very cool. Um, then my job's done.
0: So who come, I'm sort of thinking about the fact that people don't tend to go to music Alone. Yeah. And um, sometimes, though, they don't necessarily go with their multi generational families that they're going with their peers and friends and people who love similar genres, yeah. etc. Are you getting people who really are wanting a physical, multi generational experience together or groups of, fr- of folks of the same age group, people who are already? very environmentally oriented friends of the botanical gardens what type of a population shows up for this yes. experience
1: <laughs> the answer is yes all, all of the them evolved. so it depends where we're playing see, and who the promoter is and what kind of reach their institution has santa fe botanical garden it was a 55 dollar ticket so it was like friends of the botanical garden um well-heeled, um, that, that had the money, that could buy a couple of $55 tickets uh, to come and see this in this incredible setting outdoors, while, by the way, real moths were flying around on screen as we were doing our thing. We play in Toronto at a place called the Paradise um, Paradise Theatre. It's, bas- it's like a very hip club where they have to show movie screenings and there's an attached bar to it, but the entire staff there is in their their 20s so it was them and their friends there's a it was a very young crowd there in toronto at that um uh, another show in toronto was you know all these museums are doing these after hours events now they shut the doors they bring up the, they turn the lights down they have a dj in this room they'll have a performance by the moth project that was a very very young very young crowd that was there uh, coming walking through the halls of the royal ontario museum in toronto um it depends where we are and and where we're playing this coming week, we'll play at the Cutting Room in New York. I think it'll be a lot of our friends and colleagues, so maybe people our age and people we sit in the orchestra pits with. Uh, Whitney, by the way, um, uh, does a lot of Broadway shows and plays You know, with New York City Ballet occasionally, so it's her colleagues and friends. Um, uh, but I again, I, I've always had a hard time sort of pinholing who, who is your audience, but it really is a pretty multi-generational thing, as you mentioned. Um, and it has more to do with the venue and whoever's promoting it um, than than with us, I think, until we get to the point where people will definitely come to see us because they know who we are. We're not there yet.
0: And is it largely word of mouth booking of folks who see it, do it, learn about it, hear from friends and then say, come, come to my venue, come to There's my community? So, so far.
1: And again, this is where really just rolling this out this month but we've done 10 shows in the last year just sort of workshopping this getting it up off its feet um i've gone to a couple of conferences industry conferences there's one in new york every january called apap which is the um is it is the association of performing artists performing yeah artists. I, I mean I did, i've done mm-hmm. it many times in the past but i hadn't done it for 15 years but i went last january so presenters at some of the theaters will go see my booth or see our showcase and say ah that you're doing that, that kind of thing that's that's sort of what we're booking for next year i also went to a museum conference um in denver uh, earlier in may so all the museums who are now trying to get people out after hours kind of thing this place right into that 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 mission statement and we're also invited to um a a park ranger conference it's called nai national association for interpretation a thousand park rangers from around north america converge always on in one place for three or four days and talk about how you know they're going to do their programs what kind of initiatives what kind of programming they're going to do and we were invited to the one last year in Cleveland um because their mission statement was the intersection of art and science and they caught wind of oh that's exactly what what we we want to do so they invited us to to play for their opening night sort of gala event um um so it's less word of mouth and more me uh um proactively trying to get it out there any way I can which is that's the heavy lift the art is the easy part it's the getting the word out that's the hard part these days it's really hard
0: but finding communities of practice who have a need right so that you are helping them broaden more into the arts something that might have been a space of science where you're providing additional content which is very popular now i'm affiliated with some of the botanical gardens here in southern california and so many evening and additional events for a premium fee yeah. oftentimes or for VIPs, yeah. um, are, are, and I should know this. Do you have then a recorded element of this for people to take home, share experience Funny at this point in time?
1: Say, I'm just looking around. Yeah. I, um, so I hadn't released an album in 14 years and I look at my kids and all music comes from, free on their phone, right? No one's buying music anymore. So I found it hard to justify putting out a CD. I mean, really? CD? People are still listening to 16-bit?
0: No, but they're listening to LPs. They are.
1: uh, Not in the numbers of of what bought music used to be. But again, my kids are Uh, never going to buy music. I had a paper route so I could buy the new Boston record in 1976 and the new Stevie Wonder record because that's what we spend our money on, right? My kids will never do that. So... Well, to get back to the story, I had I I just didn't know um, or thought I can't justify asking people to give me twenty bucks for a recorded version of the show when every streaming platform is going to have it free. I could justify charging thirty bucks by also manufacturing a hardcover book, which is an extended liner notes. So the CD comes with a hardcover book. Which has a lot of moth imagery in it All the lyrics, all the production notes Some extra stuff in it um, And that's what I'm doing Um, Again, who buys music anymore? I don't know But I I can't imagine it it, it, I'm not going to hang my hat on it And and expect to make a living selling CDs Like I did 20 years ago
0: But there's specialty audio Just like you're finding specialty performance spaces Whether it's, you know uh calm insight timer people are finding spaces for their spaces or things that are of of uh, emotional genres space you know sort of cognitive genres so it's sort of interesting as people are finding and, and the other thing i was sort of thinking that some people know who listen to this show that i've been playing in vr for about a yeah. year now that it could be a very interesting pay for it virtual reality yeah. experience to kind of walk yeah. through so, so in many ways, all of these new performance spaces and modalities are where there's some interesting niches, but then scaling gets to be some of the real challenge for a lot of this.
1: Yeah, uh, and, and just to, to go back to the, how am I going to monetize this, this the, the music? Well, I mean, you've heard the, the, the streaming revenue statistics, I'm sure, but the last one I heard, Peter Frampton. Mm-hmm. Okay, one one of the the biggest records of all time. So, what do you think? Fifty five million streams of a, of a track off of Frampton Comes Alive netted him in royalties. You know, it's one thousand seven hundred dollars. I mean, that's what we're dealing with um, in, in this in this day and age. And musicians, we are our own worst enemies. We've we've really screwed ourselves by by agreeing to do everything on spec or for free. Yeah, I'll do it for free. And if we don't, well, you better believe there's an artist right behind you who will go and play for free or for a foot in the door or for the exposure. Um, um, I mean, I, I'm buying books uh, off of my phone. Uh, why isn't anyone buying music off of their phone, you know? Um, it's because we are we are stupid musicians. We will we'll give it away just for someone to pay attention.
0: Well, more than that, it's the... The tools have made it so that, I mean, you, we can debate what the actual numbers are, but somewhere north of 100,000 new tracks being per launched day. per day yeah. right now. Per day. So so you end up in this flood. Mm-hmm. I was talking to people over the weekend um, who are working with current artists who are trying to put out an album a month right now just to kind of get the volume out there so people discover them, that they'll discover more songs and being precious even of their own mm-hmm. music. But then, you know, people are wanting a premium experience. So I find it fascinating what you are doing with the Moth Project to create a premium engagement. We're also the era where people are, you know, the the whole Van Gogh exhibit where people are walking through projection of an artist who's been dead for a very long time and paying a premium ticket to walk through light and, 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 and related music. So I think that. Uh, the designer experience is one that is in, in the group designer experience yeah. uh, to go into. Yeah. I think I
1: had that in mind when I wanted to, to, to uh, have a very strong and slick visual component to the show that it is an experience um, that just, that can't be, you know, documented on a CD. Uh, this is an experience for sure.
0: And people really want emotion. They want, if they're going to yeah. go out, they want an emotional yeah, experience. Yeah.
1: Th- 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 reaction to this
0: or a cover band like we
1: talked right about.
0: i want to go to a cover band or i want an emotional experience well i mean
1: cover bands can trigger emotions too i mean these these they're popular Absolutely. because oh remember when this song came out in 1985 and this remind always takes me back to that our 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 brains are are um the part of the brain that 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 uh that juggles you know auditory memories with with emotion are very much intertwined like uh we we can get to an emotional place by hearing a song that reminds us of when we were 17 or something Um, i I get it i get it
0: and singing along singing along i I, I, this has for me been a big outdoor concert summer of going to bands that are not my bands being with other communities and i've sat listening to so many people sing along that they don't necessarily want the new they want the things that they've been in their life for a long time that they can emotionally share in public can't blame anyone Um, for
1: that who you know who doesn't want that yeah i get it
0: so i'm excited to experience the moth project i find what you've done fascinating because you have a very high risk tolerance um much more than i have (laughs) and and being able to sort of step into the space and let it mature and ferment is uh, what a lot of people don't do. So I'm hoping listeners to this are thinking maybe I could build that ground speed as well. I could build that risk appetite and be willing to let things move into this well, space. If,
1: yeah, if they're okay um, with not paying the rent for for a while, then then I'd go for it. <laughs> you know. But it, it's it like I said, it's um, it it can be stressful and can be anxiety inducing. And I I do think it probably cost me uh, my 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 marriage.
0: What have we not
1: covered? <laughs> uh, <laughs> You've done
0: so many different things and we could probably talk for another hour, but what have we not talk, covered that you'd like to mention mm, for the listeners?
1: I don't know. Uh, I mean, a, a bit of everything, I think. Uh, I think this has been an extremely thorough. I mean, I hope some people come out. I hope people look for us on, on the website. Um, it's not just for playing these shows in October. It's, it's, it's from here on. I'm hoping to launch this and, and get a little bit of traction. Um, uh, from people to will to come out and see us, you know? But We, we haven't talked about lots of things. So to, who
0: would um, you like to reach out at? at um, who would
1: I like
0: to... <laughs> well, I was going to say, to me, one thing that might be good if people think this is really fabulous, to not just say, ooh, I'd love to hear it, but for people to reach out who have a local community group, natural gardens, et cetera, where this might be a yeah. fit to connect the dots there to say, I've heard this. Oh, let's bring this into my community. Um, are there other folks you'd like to connect with over there? Yeah. Project? So, it,
1: um, definitely not just the, the traditional music, uh, people who are, as I call them, the gatekeepers of the institutions like Lincoln center and, and the public theater, um, the dance companies, all of whom I've worked with and whose facilities I've worked at been commission at, but also Again, more into the, the the natural world institutions, the museums, the schools, um, the libraries, the botanical gardens, um, and connect with those people because I uh, I think we're onto something, uh, and I don't say that lightly. I mean, it's still a big push right now. Feel, it feels like I'm Sisyphus sometimes, but I think we're onto something, and it's resonating with people on uh, as you mentioned before on an emotional level. It's it's a lot more of a personal story than people might think. Um,
0: Peter, where can they find you?
1: At uh, mothprojectlive.com, and that'll have all the info of where we're playing. It's got a lot of videos up there, um, all shot from live shows, so they can get a sense immediately on the video page. Click on one of the six or seven videos. Oh, that's what it looks like. Um, um, There's pictures, there's a little bit of science on there, a description... I I would say that's the place to to go uh, check it out and see when we might be playing uh, and where.
0: Great. Peter, thank you very much for joining us. And I'm looking forward to enjoying the project in a wonderful space. Thank
1: you so much for having me today. That was great. Had a lot of fun. Cool.
0: Thanks for listening to creative innovators. We are expanding our footprint, so we invite you to go to creativeinnovatorspodcast.com and find us on Substack, where we are creating a new matrix of our past shows that you can find them more easily and find them along with the career adventure guide content, where you can take your own career and use some of the tools and the setup to both be inspired by past episodes of Creative Innovators, as well as become a bigger and better creative innovator yourself. We're also launching in a couple of other platforms this year. So stay tuned and join our lists and and find out where else you can find and combine with creative innovators in 2024.